1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Cassie and Helen. Uh, you've come on an interesting Sunday. Now, if you're wondering why are we looking at this passage, it is because it's just where we're up to. We work consecutively through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It is our commitment to the Word of God. And so we don't skip difficult parts. And so that's what we're looking at today. And so if you're here for the first time, welcome. Um, and it will be an interesting time together. Now, let me just uh, warn you, I'm going to give sufficient time for this passage because I want to deal with it and for us to think deeply about it and think rightly about it. And so, so just a warning, it's going to be a longer one, okay? It's going to be a longer one. Now, to keep you uh, following along, you might like to make use of the outline on the inside of the bulletin. Well, let's uh, pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we do trust that it is your word for us and it is good for us. And so help us understand as we are meant to understand it and what difference it makes to us now in life as a church family. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, every once in a while, we do come across a part of Scripture that is very controversial, countercultural, not very politically correct like this passage, and we balk at it. And I might even dare say, some may even be embarrassed by it. Why is it in the Bible? And so when we come to a passage like this, it might be easier to just skip it. Let's not talk about it, let's not discuss it, let's not think about it, let's just be hush-hush about it, especially something so controversial. But if you've been at our church for quite a while, you'll know that that is not our church. We are committed to the Word of God, and we will not skip the difficult parts, but we want to understand it rightly. We are a church committed to Word-centered teaching. Because if this is indeed the Word of God for us, then it is good for us. The problem lies not in so much what God has said, the problem often lies with how we understand it, or how we misunderstand it, or perhaps even the cultural pressures around us, which is undeniably enormous and powerful. And so when we come to the Word of God, we need to be so conscious that we don't come critiquing God's Word by our standards or by the cultural standards, which is ever-changing and so fickle. But it is the word of God that critiques us and our culture. We don't stand over the word of God, but we sit under the word of God. And so let me 
get us all just to reflect and to remember, however strong our personal convictions are, they should never override what God says. That is our commitment at this church. Now, having said that, before we dive into this passage, let me just set up the context again. Paul, the apostle, writing to Timothy, his young protege, but for their Ephesian churches. However, not just for them. It was meant to be circulated to the other churches in different areas. Hence, why it's in the Word of God and it's made it down to us. And Paul's teaching so far has been there are false teachers and we need to stop them. We need to get rid of them. Now, in this context, Paul tells us the reason for why he's writing. And so in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so where does this passage apply? The context helps us see that. It is for the household of God, how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And so we are not talking about the corporate world. Don't come with that on your mind. We're not talking about the local social club. We are talking about the household of God, the gathered people of God. And one expression of that gathering of the people of God is what happens every Sunday, just like now. So it is this context, the household of God. And so how are the people of God to conduct themselves? Well, firstly, there's a word to men. Paul has already spoken about prayer, and now he's telling men about prayer. Paul already said in verse 1, Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. But he, Paul, targets men. He's not saying that women are not to pray, of course not. But he, he targets men. Men, rather than resolve your issues with clenched fists, wanting a fight, wanting an argument, instead, open up your palms towards God, your holy hands, in humble submission to God. And so, in a sense, Paul's speaking about the attitude of the heart. Again, you need to hear Paul's not saying women are not to pray. No, he's talking about the attitude of men. Don't solve it your way with clenched fists. Open palms towards God in humility. And so verse 8, that's what we read. Have a look. So do keep your Bibles open. It will help you follow along. It's only a few verses, but we'll go through it in, in very, very um, much detail tonight. Verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, when you read that, men and brothers, that should challenge us. That should challenge us. And so those of us who are dads here, do we leave much of the praying with our children, with the mums? Again, not saying that mums are not meant to pray. Of course, mums are meant to pray. And how many of us have been blessed by the prayers of our mums? Or are they husbands amongst us? Do we delegate much of the praying in the household to our wives? Or even in churches? I want you to reflect about your church experience, whether it's with us or your previous churches, whatever church you've been to. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting and you're thinking, where are the men? 
Why is it only a bunch of women praying? Have you been in a situation like that? But let me just say, as an aside, we do praise God for what happens here. Because we, we want to model men, women praying together. At our weekly prayer meetings every Sunday morning, you see men and women praying together there. And it was also so encouraging, just Thursday night, when we had our prayer and praise night. But the first command to men, brothers, be known not for the power of your fist, not for the heat of your anger, but for the humility of your prayers. Be known for that. Now we turn to the women. Firstly, it is a word about beauty. Now, certainly not uncommon that body image back in the first century and also today is considered very important to women. Body image. But of course, not only just women. I don't want you hearing me say that. In fact, a little bit of research and you'll discover the makeup industry for men in Australia, it is huge. It is unbelievable. In fact, it's a bit shocking. 34% of millennial men in Australia are buying and using products. Um, what do you call them? Moisturizers and manscara and, and all sorts of stuff we put on our faces. I, I, I won't make any more comments. If that is you, that's okay. But Paul's point here is for women to be so consciously aware. What I want to do is what pleases God, not people. I want to be focused on pleasing God, not people. And that's Paul's teaching to women. You see, how a lady dresses is really a mirror of her mind. Now, it applies to blokes as well, of course. And so... If I want to impress those around me, if I want to come to church and impress people by my wealth, I can do that by what I wear. I'll make sure I'll flaunt it. I'll have a lot of bling, bling here and bling there. Or if I want to make a statement, a statement of rejection of authority, a statement of rebellion, a statement of my self-worth, I can do that by what I wear. And Paul is just saying here, don't be as the world is. Look at verse 9 now. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now Paul's not forbidding every jewellery or hairstyle or expensive clothes. He's not forbidding that. What he is saying is, don't adorn yourself with the things that impresses the world, but not God. And so dress modestly, with decency and propriety. Now what's the principle of modesty? Now how do you define that? How do you know what is modest? Well, a simple principle I use is, dress in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself. Hence, you always see me in blue so that I blend into the blue carpets and I just sort of like disappear. But that's something for men, but women to think about here. Is it too long, too short? Is it is too much flesh being exposed? Whatever, you have to think about that. 
In fact, it has to be not just thought about, it has to be taught. If it's not taught to our younger ladies, we'll be influenced by the world. And you see, over the last few decades, it's changed. It's changed, hasn't it? So mothers here, we have to teach our daughters. Yvonne, I know she's spent some time with our daughter, Esther, talking to her about dignity and modesty. How are we meant to dress? And so instead of adorning yourself with outward beauty, adorn yourself with true beauty, which is consistent with your faith. And so verse 10, with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, it's how we've tried to teach our children. Now, we don't get it all right all the time. We make our mistakes as parents, of course. But how we've tried to teach this lesson is we we use the word beauty less often to describe what they wear. Instead, we use the word beauty to describe their character. And so, Esther, we notice how you've been so serving and caring. That is beautiful. What you wear, that dress, who cares? When I say that. (laughs) But we want to emphasize and highlight it is the character that we're interested in. And so, sisters, instead of being known for what impresses the world, be known for the beauty of your good works. It is how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And now we move on. So that's two verses down. We've got a few more. But we'll spend a lot more time on the last few verses. Now we've got another word to women. Now this is one about learning. This is the imperative of this section. Women are to learn. It is a positive exhortation rather than what was happening in the society back then. The Greek philosopher, one of them of the day, was teaching, this is how women are to behave. The virtuous wives were to be hidden away, not even to make her own friends. She should just be content with her husband's friends. That was life. That was the culture. Well, what Paul does here is he opens it up to all women. In the household of God, you are to learn alongside the men. The word of God is for you as well. And so both men and women learning together. And do you know what difference that made to Christian living and to society in the first few centuries? It shaped society because of the teachings of the, the Apostle Paul. In the first few centuries, what changed? Christian women enjoyed a substantially higher status in the church than what pagan women did in society. Christians elevated women and their status. For example, in the Roman world, it was unheard of what Paul taught about marriage. In the Roman world, the wives were the property of the husband. That was how it was thought and taught. What did the Apostle Paul say? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, When you get married, husbands, your body belongs to your wife. That was unheard of. And your body wives belong to your husband. There is equality there. And so that changed society slowly. 
And because of the teachings of the Bible, there is now the dignity and worth of human life. There is equal value between men and women, boys and girls. Same value, worth in the eyes of God. And so what, what changed because of that? You don't kill baby girls. That was what happened in the, in, in the Roman world. If uh, a baby girl was born because they were seen as less important or less significant than boys, they were killed off. It was called female infanticide. It was commonplace and it was legal. The Christians came along and said, you don't do that. Boys, girls, both of equal worth and value before God. That's how society slowly changed. Or in the scriptures we see, particularly in the book of Acts, the faithful service of women were encouraged. They were partners with the apostle Paul, such as Phoebe, the deacon, Priscilla, his missionary partner. Ministry and service amongst the women were encouraged and they were valued. And more than that, both men and women are co-heirs of the kingdom. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that changed the early church. That changed society. There is a place for women, not only in the gathered assembly, but in the kingdom of God. Both men and women, equal in worth, in dignity, both made in the image of God, loved and cherished by him, and equal recipients of salvation. You have to understand that. That is the teaching of the word of God. It is what we must understand from God's perspective. However, Paul now teaches that though there is equality in our worth and dignity, it does not do away with God-ordained gender distinctions or functional differences. Men and women are equal, but different. And those differences are good and are meant to be embraced. And so there is a proper way in which men and women are to conduct themselves in the household of God. And now Paul says that. Verse 11, have a look. A woman should learn, that is the imperative there, in quietness and full submission. Now what did he mean? Let me make three points. Firstly, it does not mean all women are to submit to all men in every place and order time. No, that is not what it's teaching. And so don't just discard this passage away yet. That is not what it's teaching. It is specific to the church context, which includes, in fact, not just women, but the vast majority of men as well. Women and the vast majority of men are to submit and to learn together, submitting to the recognized authoritative teacher of the Word of God, to the recognized authoritative teaching of the Word of God by some men, only some, namely the elders. And that's what we'll consider next week when we get to chapter 3. So that's the first point. The second one, 
quietly does not mean silence. It's in fact the same word that was used in verse 2 for men and women, that we may lead quiet lives. Is that quietness, that instead of being disruptive and rebellious, it is that quiet life. And it doesn't mean silence because we can see from 1 Corinthians 11, women were to pray in the public gatherings and even prophesy in the public gatherings. And I hope you see, even in the way we've conducted our church services, we have men and women serving together and men and women up front. That is what we try to um, demonstrate. Three, Full submission here does not mean subjugation, nor inferiority, nor oppression. Submission does not mean those things. And unfortunately, because of the world in which we live, it has come to mean those things because that is what we've come to see. And we see how authority has been abused over and over again, and it's horrible, and it is wrong. But we need to see this God's way. Both authority and submission is good in God's design for proper ordered relationships. And so let's consider it in turn. What does biblical authority look like? Biblical authority is one of responsibility and service. It is not lording over. It is not chauvinism. It is not authoritarianism, nor is it about superiority. That's not biblical authority. Consider Jesus Christ himself. Apart from God the Father, there is no one in higher authority than Jesus Christ in the entire universe. And what did Jesus do with his authority? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus expressed his authority by even dying for sinners. That is how authority is meant to be expressed, with responsibility and in service. And so those in the church, the elders in particular, are to express their authority in such a way, bearing responsibility for the church. Now, you may not know, but at our session meetings, when the elders meet, there are a lot of things that are discussed, prayed about, and they bear a lot of the responsibilities that is unknown for your good. And of course, the elders are to give their lives in service of the church, knowing that elders, we will be accountable to God. In fact, everyone will be, but especially those who lead. And so biblical authority is the higher up you go, it's the lower you go. The Christian world turns it upside down. Biblical authority is a good thing. Now, what about biblical submission? What does that look like? Well, it's the flip side of that. It is voluntarily, joyfully placing myself under the authority that God has placed above me. And so we see the teachings in Ephesians 5, for example. Children, submit to your parents. Wives, the husbands. We see citizens, we're to submit to the rulers. And Christians, we are to submit to authorities that God has placed above us. But in no way does submission mean inferiority. That's where the world gets it wrong. But what does the Bible mean? All people 
are made in the image of God and are of equal worth and equal dignity before God. That is the wonderful doctrine of humanity. Whether you're able or unable, equal before God. In fact, when we consider the Trinity, we see submission there as well. Do you notice that? Have you thought about that? When we consider the Trinity, you see subordination and submission as well. God is always the Father, and Jesus is always the Son. It is Jesus who submits to the Father. It is Jesus who obeys the Father, and we never get that mixed around. The Father never obeys the Son. Never once did Jesus go to God the Father and say, I don't like the idea of submitting to you. I just don't like it. It's old-fashioned, it's quaint, and I don't like it. Not at all. But did submission, the submission of Jesus, make him in any way inferior to God the Father? Not at all. Of course not. He is no less divine, no less glorious, no less powerful, and no less deserving of our praise and worship. And so, if we have a problem with submission, with subordination, then we have a problem with the Trinity. You see, authority and submission is all part of a good ordering of relationships, and it is good. We see it even in the Godhead. Now, that sounds so countercultural, doesn't it? But if we understand it from God's perspective, the way it's been designed, it is always good. Though we fail, we make mistakes, and we see it all over the place, God's design is still good. Now, Paul expands on that point. Remember, we're talking about the household of God. Look at verse 12 now. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. In fact, in the NIV, it should be more precisely quiet. It's the same word in verse 11. Now, the reading of that verse is quite plain. Read it, you should be able to understand it. You may not like it, but we can't dismiss it. But the plain reading of the text is plain. But let's try to understand it. What is prohibited here? Well, what is prohibited here in the household of God when men and women are gathered together as the household of God, as the people of God? Women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. That's just what it says. And that is because the role of teaching and exercising authority is the role and responsibility limited to some men. Not all men. Not at all. Some men. Namely, the ministers, the elders. Which is what the very next chapter speaks of. You see, that is not a role to be filled by women. And it's not talking about competence here. It's not talking about competence. That's the way of the world. If I can do a better job than men, then I should get the job. And that is okay. For sure. Of course you'll see that in the world, and that is okay. There are many uh, female doctors who would perform better than male doctors or accountants and, and so forth. However, when we come to the church and the household of God, leadership is not about competence in that way. Now, this is not to say that women are not to teach at all. I don't want you to hear that. 
Of course not. You see, Paul encourages women to be teaching, teaching other women, teaching their family, their children, and it happens all the time in our church, in our kids' ministry, in our youth group, in our one-to-one discipleship, even in our growth groups. Older couples teaching younger couples. It's in fact one of the ministries that Yvonne and myself enjoy doing, just taking on a younger couple and to teach them together. In fact, just this weekend, there was the Women's Leaders Retreat and there was a lot of teaching and that is to be encouraged. But what is restricted here is the role of the recognised authoritative teachers of the Word of God in the gathered church. Now what it what is also worth noticing in verse 12 is that it is not two prohibitions, but it is just the one. Teaching and exercising authority is to be seen as the one construct, the one activity, not two separate activities. It's not as though I can teach without authority, nor can I uh, express authority without teaching. You cannot separate the two. Authority is exercise through the word ministry. And so authority is bound up with the teaching ministry. It's why teaching is expected of elders, but not deacons. And we'll see that next week. Now, you might be thinking, why is this important to keep in mind? Well, it's important to keep in mind because it is really to remind the church where the ultimate authority lies. It doesn't lie in an ecclesiastical office. It doesn't lie in the office of being an elder. It in fact lies with the very words of God. What God says is the authority. And so that's the plain reading of the text. Remember, we're just looking at the text at the moment. That's a plain reading. But the question remains, and I'm sure if you've been thinking about this passage already, you'll be asking, is this restriction only for a narrow historical context? Only the churches in Ephesus, only for that time and that place and no more and nowhere else. Or are these restrictions universal? You have to pick the two. Universal or time limited? Well, those who argue that the restriction was only for that historical situation and it no longer applies today, the way that view is defended often goes a bit like this. In Ephesus, there was the cult of the goddess Artemis. And what that meant was that there were a lot of prophetess. And when they became Christians, they were teaching false doctrine and they were behaving erratically. And Paul would have none of that. That's often how it's been defended. Now that view is defended by some reconstruction of the historical setting of life in that context. You defend that view by working out what life was like and you reconstruct that picture. And what you'll find amongst the scholars is that there are variations of that, many variations of what life was like. And if there are many variations and it is disputed, it means that maybe it wasn't really like that. So was Paul only speaking to a time and place in a limited fashion? Well, I I see four major problems with that argument, and I'll I'll share a four. There are more, but I'll share a four. You have to make quite a a big 
a few exegetical somersaults to go there. Even, the first one, even if it could be proven that there were, was a, such a unique cultural situation in Ephesus that gave rise to Paul's restriction, it does not necessarily follow that it should not apply in other places and other times. Because the intention of the letter was that it would be circulated anyway. That's the first. Second, why would Paul only target the female false teachers if that was the problem? Why only target the female ones? I mean, the Apostle Paul couldn't care less. If you are a false teacher, male or female, you are out and you better stop. In fact, we're already told of two names who were false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and they were both blokes. In fact, much of early church history, the heretics were men, not women. Three, I would be extremely cautious if my understanding of Scripture comes from something outside of Scripture. Or worse, I import meaning into the text that is just not there. It undermines the sufficiency and the supremacy of Scripture. If Paul had an issue or a very specific issue with the Artemis cult, he could have said just that. But he didn't. And four, perhaps what should be most obvious, Paul in fact gives us the reason. He told us why in verse 12. And the reason Paul gives is the very reason why the restriction is universal, not time-limited. It, it is an enduring principle. Look at what he says. Paul grounds it in creation, before the fall, before things went bad, not in some cultural expectation, but the unchanging order of creation. And you see that in other parts of the New Testament. When creation is appealed to, it is universal. For example, when Jesus was asked about divorce, where did he go? He went to Genesis 2, about the first marriage. It is meant to be faithful and lifelong. Or when the Apostle Paul, he asks back to creation, it is because he's appealing to some universal, timeless principle. And that's what he does here. Look at verse Verses 13 and 14 now. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now what's that about? Well, Paul is saying here that there is an order in creation that establishes an order of relationships between men and women. And it is not certainly merely about chronological order because we know that God created the donkeys before man. So it's not just about chronology. It is an order of relationship and authority by God's ordained design. The man was created to lead and to express his leadership by showing responsibility for. And the woman was made from him to be his helper in the work of creation. Again, both equal in dignity and worth, but different in roles and responsibilities. 
and those differences are good and are to be embraced. And how was it that the order in creation, how was that disrupted? Well, what you find in Genesis is that it was meant to look like this. God up the top as Lord and King over all, over Adam and Eve, over humanity. And within humanity, there is an order between male and female. But together as humanity, to rule over the animal kingdom. Now the serpent, he was very, very cunning. He deceived Eve, not Adam. And there's a reason why he deceived Eve and not Adam. Why? Because the serpent was turning God's order upside down. God's order of authority, of leadership, of responsibility upside down. He places himself up top. And he disrupts the order between male and female, man and woman, and places God down the bottom. Now, that does not absolve Adam of his guilt. Not at all. He was guilty for sure. He was standing there right next to Eve. In fact, Paul assigned primary responsibility for sin to Adam. But what happened? What was the problem? Adam should have done something about it. He was standing there. But what did he do? He took the back seat when he should have led. And Eve took the front seat when she should have been led. And so she was deceived, not Adam. Now we need to be careful when we look at this verse that we don't go beyond the text and say any more than what the text is saying. We're not told the reasons for why she was deceived. We're not told because she was more gullible or anything like that. And we do not want to say that. Let's not go beyond the text. All Paul was doing in this verse was rehearsing what happened in the fall. When the order of responsibility was reversed or tampered with, Adam abrogating his leadership, Eve assuming a leadership that was not hers, it led to disastrous effects. And that is why Paul was here reaffirming the order of relationships that is meant to be seen in the household of God. There was something embedded within creation, the creation order that mandates a complementary relationship. Men are to lead sacrificially, lovingly, you bear responsibility. You don't run away from your responsibility. And women, you learn willingly, submissively to those God has entrusted over you in the Lord. In fact, we are meant to see this in also the family unit. We see it in Ephesians 5, between husbands and wives. And though not all men will be leaders in the church... There will only be a few, a handful, however many. Not all men will be leaders in the church. You will be in your household if you have a family. And so men, the lesson is really, men, don't be an Adam. Don't be an Adam. Sometimes in our household, I hear Yvonne call out, Adam. And I'm thinking, I've got a Caleb, I've got a Titus, my name's John. Who is, he talk, who, who is she talking to? And of course, she's talking to me. And what does she mean? Take the lead. 
bear the responsibility. Don't run away from it. Don't do the blame game like Adam. Don't be an Adam. And now Paul ends with where he started. Good works, good sense, propriety. Now this is also a much debated verse, verse 15, our last one. But women, in the NIV, but women, but more precisely it should be the singular she. In the Greek it's just a singular she. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now what that verse cannot mean is that salvation comes from giving birth. Not everyone will give birth. Not everyone will become mothers. And what do you say when it comes to a C-section? It is not about that. So what did Paul mean? Well, it comes down to how we understand the word saved. These are the best two explanations for these, uh, this verse. There are about 50 of them. You can read that yourself if you like. But these are the best two. If by the word saved, we mean spiritual salvation. If we mean spiritual salvation, we'll talk about spiritual preservation in a moment, but if we mean spiritual salvation, that is, I'm saved spiritually. And when we look at this verse and we read, she will be saved, then that could be refer, referring to the unique childbearing that was promised to Eve. Not every Women giving birth, but a specific, unique childbearing event. And so in Genesis 3.15, in our first reading, it could be referring to this offspring of Eve, who will one day come along and crush the serpent's head, and the one who will reverse the curse of the fall. And of course, that is looking forward to the birth of Jesus Christ, who comes and dies for sin and brings about salvation. And so it could be referring to that, that childbirth, not all childbirths, but that unique one of Jesus Christ. Now, I think there are some merit to this way of understanding. Because it is saying, whatever we are to make of the relationship between men and women and how we are to conduct ourselves, we are both on the same footing when it comes to salvation. We both need a saviour in Jesus Christ. And so that's the first explanation. The second one, if by the word saved we mean spiritual preservation instead, that is, the woman will be preserved from falling into the same error as Eve. The woman will be preserved from assuming a role that is not hers. And she will do so by embracing her unique, God-ordained role that only women can do. And that is summarized, expressed by childbearing. Only women can do that. And so Paul is really pro-family here. Now, of course, Paul recognizes not everyone will give birth, not everyone will get married, not everyone will become mothers. That's not his point. His point is that, as one pastor has put it, Women are better than men at being women. It's not very complicated. Think about that. And men are better than women 
ebbing men. And so the difference is embrace it. Continue in the way that God has made you. That is part of your godly living. And I think there is also a lot of merit in this explanation. Because later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy was called to watch his life and doctrine closely. For by it, he will save himself and his hearers. Now the word save there is that spiritual preservation. He'll be preserved. His life and his hearers' lives will be preserved. And they won't fall away. And so they're the two best explanations out there. And I go from one to the other. I reckon they're both good, but one of them is probably true. But of course, what does this mean for us? What difference does this lesson here mean for our church? Well, I think the main problem with such a passage that sounds so controversial and countercultural, the problem is not so much exegetical, what it means. I think that is plain. The difficulty is practical. What does it look like in practice? And I think what we need to do is at least hear from this that men and women have a place in the service of God and in honouring God. Though there are different roles and responsibilities, they are good together, complementing one another. Now, before you think this is just unworkable, well, let me encourage you to consider how we've worked hard as a church, as an eldership, how we've worked hard at being consistent with Scripture, not compromising on what it says, and not seeing these as rules for restrictions, but always opportunities, clarity for service. And so in our church, this is how it works. In our church, there are only male elders. In our church, only men, and only some men for elders, and only some men will be ordained as ministers. Remember, you have to remember, not every man. Only those qualified, which we'll spend some time next week. And as a pattern of creation, we have men leading services. But apart from those roles, apart from that, every other ministry in our church, you see men and women working side by side. Every other ministry. In fact, there are some ministries led by women, and that is encouraged. We want to see that. In fact, in our ministry team, our paid staff, we complement each other. You've got Ollie, you've got Michelle, and you've got myself. In fact, even in our session, that is the group of elders, there's one role amongst the session, which is called the session clerk. Normally, it is filled by an elder, but not necessarily. And so our elders thought, let's get the best session clerk we can find doesn't have to be an elder, doesn't have to be a guy. And so our session clerk, many of you know, is Grace, and she is brilliant. Or our women's worker. She is also invited to, to contribute, her unique contributions, in session. And so she comes along to session, and we hear her. We want her input into the decisions of our church. And so even in our session. You see, men and women working together. 
In fact, it was a conviction of our elders many years ago. After I was employed, we, we were convicted that the third paid staff should be a female. In fact, this was many years ago. Some of you were around at that point. But it took us a few years before we found Michelle. In fact, what you find is that in denominations that hold a complementarian view, that is men and women complementing each other, you find in denominations that hold that view, train and employ more female gospel workers. That is true. An example, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney and their Bible College, Moore College, trains up so many women for ministry. And every second or third work employed in the diocese is a female. And that is because we see it can work and we can work together. And so you can see God has given us a pattern for his household. It is meant to be for our good. But of course, I have brothers and sisters in Christ and you would have too. And maybe it might be even some of you here who would disagree with that view on this passage. There must be charity. There must be grace. I mean, we are all submitting ourselves under God. Churches will look different. There will be different practices in different churches. There must be charity. But we strive to be faithful. We seek to honour God the best way we know how. And so finally... Wherever you serve, and I do hope and encourage all of us are serving in some way, in this church, outside of this church, with each other, for each other, we have to remember that our service is not about our worth. That is fixed. Our service is not about our status. We are not like how the world functions. The higher up you go, it means the lower you go. Authority, if you have any, it is not a lording over but it is one of responsibility and service. And so men, I mean, many of you are still very young men, but you need to put into practice already. You need to put into practice. That is, don't be an Adam and run away from your responsibilities at home or at church. Men, don't be an Adam. Otherwise, you'll show yourself unreliable, untrustworthy. Be men of prayer. Women, serve embracing how God has made you. Plenty of opportunities to serve, to teach, to build up the household of God, and to honour your Father in heaven. And so... My final word to all of us, let us strive to do this well together. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that though these words might sound hard to us, but we know that you intended for good, that we might order our relationships the way you have ordained. But we know, Lord, we make mistakes, we fail, and we do thank you for Jesus Christ, for in him we are forgiven. But help us, Lord, to honour you the way you have made us, to embrace how you have made us, and to serve you wholeheartedly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.